welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 28, 2008. I'm Adrian Burke. Neil Shubin is Associate Dean of Organismal Biology and Anatomy at the University of Chicago. He's also the provost in the Field Museum there. His work seeks to understand the mechanisms behind the evolutionary origin of new anatomical features and faunas. Shubin says that the philosophy that underlies all of his empirical work is derived from the conviction that progress in the study of evolutionary biology results from linking research across diverse temporal, phylogenetic, and structural scales. His new book, Your Inner Fish, A Journey into the 3.5 Billion Year History of the Human Body, tells the story of evolution by tracing the organs of the human body back millions of years, long before the first creatures walked the earth. By examining fossils and DNA, Shubin shows that our hands actually resemble fish fins, our head is organized like that of a long-extinct jawless fish, and major parts of our genome look and function like those of worms and bacteria. He spoke at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. What we're going to talk about tonight is actually a piece of our very distant past, from about 375 million years ago, but also a piece of our present, and if we have time, a piece of our future. And our past, at least in this particular uh, venue tonight, begins in a major event in the history of the Earth, uh, that in, extended from about 380, that's 380, 380 million years ago, uh, up into uh, about 365 million years ago. And what happened at this time period is fish, like you see up here, and this is a creature from about 380 million years ago, uh, eventually evolved, uh, it gave, gave rise to descendants, which evolved uh, to, to walk on land, like the creature you see here, which is an early land-living creature, a limbed animal called a tetrapod, um, from about 365 million years ago. So life in water, life in land, you have this great transformation. And what I want to do today is to tell you a little bit about how we learn about this great transformation in the history of life. We can find new evidence to understand how it happened. But also importantly, how do we think about what this event means to our own lives today and to our lives uh, in the future? Because really this event is, is very important in understanding our own bodies. Okay, so... I've been in love with this transformation uh, since I was a graduate student uh, about 25 years ago. And you know, at the time, it really struck me that one can make a real difference in this field by finding new data, by actually finding new evidence about how this happened. So I began, as a graduate student, really thinking about, well, if we want new fossils to tell us something about this transformation from fish to amphibian, where would we look? Uh, and how would we go about finding them? And so I followed the general rules that paleontologists everywhere have, uh, have used uh, to, find new, to find new fossils. And really what we look for when we design a new expedition is really sort of three things. We look for rocks of the right places that have rocks of the right age to find the fossils that we're interested in. So I'm interested in the you know, transformation from fish to amphibian. So it's not rocket science that I'm interested in. Uh, rocks about 375 million years old. So age is important. We look for rocks of the right type, that is the right kind of rocks to preserve fossils, where the animals might have lived in the first place or where the fossils might actually be preserved. And actually you gain experience in that sort of thing. That's something you acquire over many years of looking for, for fossils. And the third thing is really important, and that is it does me no good if my rocks of the right age and my wonderful rocks of the right type are buried five miles underground. 
I need those rocks at the surface where we can actually look for fossils that are weathering out uh, of, uh, of them. So all this really began in earnest when I began my first academic job uh, in the early 90s. And I began as an uh, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, right here in Philadelphia. And there's certain things that you have uh, when you're an assistant professor, certain constraints. You need to design a new research program, but you have a big constraint, and that is you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so what I needed was a research program where I could do research on the cheap. Uh, and looking at a geological map of Pennsylvania, which I've excerpted a piece of it here, you could see what struck me immediately about my native state. That is, you see here Devonian, which is rocks of the right age, generally speaking, uh, shown here almost in purple, peppered the entire state. Okay, so it struck me that, you know, we could develop a research program, you know, just hopping in our car and checking out the Devonian age rocks. Super. It gets even better when we see what, how the um, Pennsylvania State geologists actually mapped the geology of Pennsylvania. So let's think about Pennsylvania 365 million years ago. Get Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Harrisburg out of your brain. Think Amazon Delta. This is Pennsylvania of, uh, of, of the Lake Devonian 365 million years ago. It had highlands to the east, an inland sea known as the Catskill Sea to the west, and a series of rivers draining along a delta system uh, from east to west. Now, if you're a paleontologist interested in the transformation or the origin of, of land-living animals, this is perfect, because if you play your cards right, you can sample ancient oceans and estuaries, ancient streams, all the way up. Lots of different ecosystems that you can look at. So we have rocks of the right age, just nearby, and we have rocks of the right type uh, nearby as well. Unfortunately, there's that third nasty criterion I told you about before is exposures. Pennsylvania is not known as being as beautiful as the uh, Gobi Desert that uh, Mike Novacek works in in terms of exposures. It's, it's covered by, uh, by grass and, 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 and trees and cities and so forth. So the places where we've worked are the places where the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation decided to propose. So what we did was my research program with Ted Deschler, uh, the, the graduate student and ultimately close colleague who's taken ownership of this project, is we would literally follow the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation around uh, as they made new roads. So we heard they're dynamiting on Route 15. We'll get up there and then we check out, the, uh, check out what's coming out. And this is actually one of our best spots. This is about 45 uh, miles north of State College, Pennsylvania. It's in rocks that are dated at about 365-ish million years old. And you can see there's a human being for scale wearing this little yellow construction hat. There's a Subaru or something like that. And then what you have here are the layers of rock. These are the strata, like laid out like a layer cake. You're going from older rock to younger rock here. This is an exceptional site because each of these layers that you see represents the life stage of an ancient stream. So the formation and, and, and changing of the stream. And so what we did is we... Um, our research program here was really literally to crawl up and down these cliffs. It got a little hairy from time to time, as you can imagine, out here. Um, but um, we would find lots of bones, and it was truly remarkable. Starting in 1993, we started finding things like this. Big teeth, the size of railroad spikes. So something funny is going on with these roadsides. We started finding the jaws of these creatures. This is the front end of a jaw. Ted's holding it here. These jaws are the length of the arm. The whole animal might be, you know, 15 uh, feet long. So we're finding these giant predatory and carnivorous fish along these uh, roadsides in Pennsylvania. We're finding all kinds of other smaller armored fish as well, which I won't show you. And voila, what we started to find in these rocks about 365 million years old is individual bits and pieces of some 
the earliest land-living tetrapod-limbed animals, such as this thing here, which is a humerus, an upper arm bone, characteristically like a land-living animal. We start to find jaws of these things, shoulders and so forth, bits and pieces of uh, early uh, land-living animals. So it's really remarkable. I mean, here we're, you know, working by the side of a roadside. Trucks are whizzing by us left and right. And here we're digging and revealing an ancient world. And National Geographic uh, modeled this ancient world, what it looked like, uh, drew it, uh, uh, you know, eight years ago or so. And here's what the reconstruction is. You have some of the earliest forests, so we're finding uh, bits and pieces of leaf and stem and uh, plants and so forth. Uh, we find other types of, types of uh, plants. We find those giant carnivorous predatory fish I was telling you about before. Uh, we find lots of little small armored fish. And we find bits and pieces of the earliest uh, limbed animals. So what we have along these roadsides of Pennsylvania is a snapshot of an ancient world. Now, Ted and I were really pleased with this. But we had a problem. <coughs> Excuse me. But we had a problem. The party's over. That is, what we're looking at is this time period, where you already have land-living animals. You already have tetrapods, limbed animals. Okay? So the event we were interested in explaining already happened. So to really get to the heart of the matter, if we really wanted to answer the question of how a fish that lives in water eventually gave rise to descendants that ultimately were able to exploit land, and live on land, we had to move back in time. And, and so Ted and I began uh, to really think about this. Now let me just give you a sense of what this transformation is about. You know, when you go from a body plan of a fish to a body plan of a limbed animal, like this tetrapod here, lots are changing. And I just want to give you a brief overview. Fish, like bass, okay, have a conical head with eyes on either side. Okay? By the time you get to the earliest land-living animals, you get creatures with a very flat head, almost crocodilian-like, with eyes on top. Okay? Fish have a head that's connected to the shoulder by a, uh, by a series of bones. So the fish can't move its head independently of its body. Okay? Whereas, fortunately, we, like our distant uh, earliest limbed ancestors, have a neck where the head is not connected by bone to the shoulder girdle, and the head can swivel relative uh, to the body. And uh, finally, and not least, is you know, fish have fins to swim around in, and, uh, and limbed animals, as the name implies, the tetrapods, have uh, fingers and toes, wrists and ankles, and limbs. I could spend the whole seminar, or the whole talk today, just listing the differences. Those are just sort of an overview of, of the major ones. And so what Ted and I really wanted to do, what we had to get at, was to move back in time to find new sites that could tell us about how this transformation of these major features happened. So basically tell us how creatures evolved uh, to live on land. So this is what was known at the time. This is sort of an evolutionary tree. Here are the earliest tetrapods. And these are the fish that we had been collecting and others had been collecting as well that are closer and closer and closer to limbed animals. But there was a big gap. You started to see fish with sort of flat heads here. As you can see, this is a fish that was known from, that's known from Latvia. But there's sort of a gap in between a body plan like this and a body plan uh, like that. Furthermore, there was a fairly good gap in time uh, where you have the earliest known tetrapod limbed animals at about 365 to 363 million years ago, and this whole assemblage of sort of lobe-thin fish, which are a group of fish that's much closer to related to these creatures, that sit at about 380, 390, but we created a gap of sort of tetrapod relatives in this space. So my goal, and Ted's goal, was we want to design an expedition find things at that question mark in time. So we had this, we had our three criteria, right? We look for rocks at the right age, rocks at the right type, rocks exposed. Uh, went through geological maps, 
aerial surveys, state geological surveys, oil and gas records, and we had all kinds of ideas that concocted that. Brazil was a possibility. Uh, the American West was a possibility. Uh, uh, Alaska was a possibility. One day, we're sitting in my office at the University of Pennsylvania in, in 1998, and Ted and I got into an argument. Uh, I forget what the argument was about. I forget who won. All I remember is how we settled it. We settled it when I pulled out a textbook, an undergraduate geology textbook that was in my office. I tried to settle the argument just by finding a fact from this textbook. So here's the textbook. Dot and Batten. Uh, Batten used to be at the American Museum, Columbia University. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's the evolution of the Earth. And in this textbook, during this argument we were thumbing through, we found a diagram that was ch to change the course of our research ever since. This is 1998. Uh, that was 10 years ago. And the research I've been doing ever since then is derived from a figure in this textbook. Let me show it to you. And it's worth spending some time on this figure because it kind of tells you what we're looking for in, the, in a nutshell. Just like figure 14.1 from Dot and Bat, okay? And it's upper Devonian sedimentary facies. In English, that means... Rocks that are close to the right age and rocks that are close to the right type. So we're, we're, all, we're, we're getting on there. And here you see a map of North America. So here's Canada, here's the U.S., there's Greenland and Arctic Canada. And superimposed on that map are the interpretations of what the Devonian Age rocks, what environments they were formed in. So this is code for that there was a large ancient Devonian ocean in the western part of North America. But the textbook authors identified three delta regions that would be much like the Amazon Delta today. There's, <clears throat> there's this one here, <clears throat> which is in the eastern seaboard of the United States. Well, that's where we were finding fossils already, right, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in Pennsylvania. There's this area here that was identified. It was uh, East Greenland, which is in the 1920s and 30s, which was the site of some of the major and first early limbed animal discoveries. And then there's this. Arctic Islands, completely unexplored. So basically what we saw in this textbook was we had a mapped delta system from the uh, Devonian that extended 1,500 kilometers from east to west. I said to Ted, whoa, your argument is pissed off. Well, um, have you, do you know anybody who's worked there? He said, I don't know anybody I don't know anybody either. So we all of a sudden got on the internet and to see had anybody looked for fossils up there. And we couldn't believe our luck. None of our colleagues had ever been there before. Despite the fact that oil and gas geologists working in the 70s um, in, in Canada had actually mapped these rocks beautifully, uh, very well. And this is what it's about. So what you're seeing here is Nunavut territory. It's lagging Nunavut. And here's the North Pole, the northern view. And this is Nunavut territory. And here's Ellesmere Island. It's the latitude of about 80 north. Here's Ellesmere Island. It's a blow-up of Ellesmere Island. And you see superimposed on this is this little thing here. And this is where the oil and gas geologists had mapped where the Devonian rock uh, uh, was exposed, running from east to west. So it's a really vast exposure. This is huge. Ted and I uh, couldn't believe our luck. So this is up for nothing. So Ted and I were so excited when we saw this particular diagram. We knew we were on to it. Uh, we, um, I was in nearest Pennsylvania, so we went uh, to a Chinese food restaurant that was right down the street uh, from my office. We had lunch. And I opened my fortune cookie, and it said, soon you will be at the top of the world. <laughs> it's like, okay. So what I did is I slapped that thing right up on my door and had it since, until the time I moved uh, to the University of Chicago. And it got even better because the, um, the rocks of the Canadian Arctic were actually at about 375 million years ago. Remember that question mark of the slide I showed you before? Bingo, we're sitting right on that question mark. So rocks of the right age, they're in the Canadian Arctic. If they're not covered by ice... Uh, 
you know, or, or little patches of tundra, they're absolutely going to be exposed. There's always going to be exposed bedrock. And it got even better when the cartoon of the area, you know, you look at it, I just used the same slide from before, but they basically, the geologists modeled that area as being a delta system, highlands to the east and inland sea to the west, and lots of streams draining uh, from east to west. Boom, all three criteria. Now we had a new problem. You know, we were used to getting in, in our cars and dry, putting you know, some sandwiches in the back and hammer and uh, driving to uh, central Pennsylvania. Now we're working here, okay? It's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Uh, you know, so that's 80 North. That's getting there is difficult. Uh, working there is difficult. Getting the permits work there is difficult. You only have four or five weeks to six weeks, if you're really lucky, uh, a year to work up there. So it's a real challenge. Just to give you a mental picture of, of that challenge, uh, this is the nearest town. It's 175 miles away from our sites. This is what it looks like in spring. So it gives you a sense how just how unbelievably harsh the area is. The nearest town is about 175 uh, people there. So what we do is to plan our expeditions. We started in 19, so we had the idea in 1998. It took us about a year to sort of get our wrap our heads around it and get money and so forth um, to get up there. And um, in 99 we ran our first field season. And this is where we started to learn about it. And we figured out sort of Arctic logistics. The way we get around up there is we take a jet from, uh, to, to Ottawa, and then you can take a jet all the way up to Baffin Island. And then you charter a small aircraft. This is a Twin Otter made by De Havilland Canada. It's a marvelous bush plane. It has a, a, a stall speed of 55 miles an hour. So when it takes off, it feels very unnatural to be going that slowly, particularly if you have a headwind. Our sites are so remote that we use these to get into the tundra. It actually lands us here on the tundra. And we use helicopters to ferry us uh, to our distant site. So th there's a long supply chain between you know, our field crew, which is usually between 6 and 11 people, and you know, civilization. Uh, and so it's really kind of a challenge to mount these things. Uh, we calculate for every day in the field, we spend between 5 and 8 days just planning logistics, you know, figuring out how to pack food in here and so forth. Creates lots of problems because... You know, we don't bring a whole lot of, this is the field crew, okay? So this is like, you know, these are our field crew members, and this is, we pack all our food in tubs. Remember, there are polar bears out here. These little tubs are sort of, not vacuum sealed, but they, uh, they don't emit smells all that much, although the polar bears will sniff around. So we don't take a whole lot of stuff, and so the weight limits are very critical. Now, this really affects our science to a big degree, because, you know, fossils are really heavy. So when we collect fossils, we have to make a careful choice. You know, is it a graduate student coming home or is it the fossil? Just kidding. Um, but we have to make a careful choice about which, which fossils uh, come home. And so these are graduate students. Oh, we need you to take an Inuit uh, youth with us. Uh, the first time we had an Inuit kid from one of that village I showed you earlier. Uh, he's from there, from Greece Fjord. That's Brian Edigutak. Um, you know, we were thinking, this is going to be a wonderful cultural experience. You know, this Inuit kid's going to come out of the... Uh, come out of the helicopter. He's been wearing mucklocks, a parka, you know, have all the... No, he showed up with an Oakland Raiders hat, turned to the side, a bottle of Pepsi <laughs> and an MP3 player uh, loaded with all the current songs. So it's a remarkably small world we live in. But anyway, that's, uh, that's crew. Um, so we started in 1999, and we plunked down on Melville Island. And this is what camp looks like, by the way. Each of us have our own personal tent, a little sort of pitched tent. They, they can, these are really good tents. They can withstand high winds. Uh, this is a uh, kitchen tent. You can't stand high winds, I know from experience. Uh, but that's where we serve our communal area. We usually like to pitch near snowfields so we can drink the water out of the stream. And then what we do is we actually, you know, every day we spend walking the rocks because we're, we're looking for the bones as they're weathering out of the rocks. And so the whole goal of these things is to walk and walk and walk, follow the geology to see where bones are weathering out and to figure out where to, to dig in. So we went out in 1999 
And it's, it's fair to, to categorize that first year's expedition as an utter and complete failure. Um, what happened was we plumped down in the wrong part of the Arctic. Had we read the geological papers a little more carefully, we discovered this is in the middle of an ancient Devonian ocean, which is not exactly the prime locality for early land-living animals. And so we also had really bad weather. So we chalked that one up to experience. We figured we'll try again. This time we're going to move further east. So in 2000, we moved east to this little spot here. And this is where we started to get onto Ellesmere Island. This is camp uh, this year. And we started getting into more terrain. So we hiked up and down these cliffs and looking for tetrapods. And this is the year we began to hone in on things. We began to see some bones. We began to see some fish of the kind we were looking for. And nothing to write home about. These were all fish that were known from other places before. And we made a series of other trips over the years. This is, I'm sorry, this is the, uh, this is from 19, I'm sorry, this is from 2002. Uh, and again, this shows you the kind of rock we work on. We just walk back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, really looking for little fragments of bone at the surface. Now, where the main fossil site that I'm going to describe to you in a second was discovered is right here. And this is right before it was discovered. This is a unbelievably serendipitous photograph. And this is the individual who was to discover it. Jason Downs, an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania, real eager paleontolo future paleontologist. He's now actually went to Yale. Uh, and we forgave him, and now he's a postdoc with us <laughs> at the University of Chicago. And um, so Jason just finished lunch, and he was about to walk up to this, this little bluff here. And what he was to discover was, you see this sort of gray zone here? Spins around. That's a net of bones. Okay, so we're all sitting in the tent, it's late one night, he was late, and we were really worried about him, actually. And he came running into the, the, the kitchen tent, guys, you won't believe it, he said, oh, just spilling out of every pocket. And he had a digital camera, we were just taking pictures of everything, he was showing us these digital photos, but they're all blurred, because he was, like, shaking so much. Um, so we said, look, since you have day, 24 hours of daylight in the Arctic, we just, and we were only about, his site was only about a mile away, so we sort of chugged down to the site, and this is us digging that site, there's Jason, early on. And what we, the job now became... His mat of bones is here. Really, where is that mat of bones weathering out? Is there a layer we could identify? And, and that's exactly what we, we, we tried to do. We tried to identify that layer, and it took us about a week to do it. And um, here's Ted Deschler, my colleague, my partner in crime. And we, we found the layer, and as we found the layer, we exposed it like a dance floor, which is what paleontologists typically do, and we started to find then skeletons, whole articulated skeletons of fish. And we were really happy until we realized they're all fish that were known before from other places. So that was not, it was 2002, that was not um, an auspicious start for this new site. So we decided to return in um, 2004, and as our last try, I'm going to show you this site. This is what the site looks like, our camp is around the bend, this is the hole we dug, this is how it looked in 2006, we're actually going to return there this summer. So we actually ended up digging a, a very big hole to try to expose as much of the bones as possible. And July 2004 was the most remarkable time in my entire paleontological career, except for the fall of 2004, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, Steve Gatesy, my colleague here, uh, was picking up rocks and from the quarry, from that hole we dug. And he ran across this thing here. I don't know if it looks like anything to you, but it's remarkable. What you see is the red rocks. These are the Devonian rocks. And you see this thing here, like a little rod. There's another rod here. What this was, it was unmistakable was the snout of a creature with a flat head sticking out of us, out to us in the rock. A flat-headed animal. Now, you know from what I told you before, flat-headed animal, important. It's either going to be a land-living animal or something really close. 
And even better, it's the snout looking out at us. So if we have any luck whatsoever, the rest of the skeleton will, will be in the rock. And that's exactly what Steve did. He's really a masterful, so he's an artist, actually. Um, and see how he removed? This is several weeks after he originally found it. He, he sort of roughed it out. And we brought it home as a, um, as a, uh, as a block um, to be prepared in the laboratory under careful conditions. And as we did that, Ferris Jenkins, my other colleague here, discovered another one of these flat-headed fish, and me working down here off the screen found another of these fish. So we all sudden, boom, 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 had flat-headed fish and skeletons to boot. And some of them were small and some of them were big. Now we face an entirely new problem. This was July 2004, and July 2004 had the absolute worst weather we've had in the Arctic in a long period of time. And regrettably, uh, we used plaster to entomb or encase our, um, our fossils for the ride home. And here they are. It wouldn't dry <laughs> because it was snowing or sleeting every day. So we set up as a, like a little kiln area. There's a little camp stove. You know, we're like praying to the drying god so that our, um, our, um, our plaster could dry. The reason being is the stuff comes home at the bottom of a helicopter. And so it's, uh, we don't want our precious fossils to, to break up. So these blocks get back home to the laboratory in, um, in fall 2004, around September 2004, and we open the plaster. And the preparators begin to work on Steve's creature first. Here's the needle. They use that needle to remove the rock piece by piece, and here's that snout exposing. Here's, you can see there's like a disc or a plate of bone. And here, look at here. Here's one hole. Here's another hole. Those are orbits where the eyes would be. A month goes by. Boom, this is what it starts to look like. Here's one orbit. Here's the other orbit. Ah, now we're starting to see a little bit of body. So over about a five to six month period in the fall to early winter of 2004, 2005, this creature was gradually being exposed from several specimens in, in Philadelphia and in Chicago. And to give you a little perspective on it, you know, here's a, here's a fish, conical head, here's an early tetrapod flathead. These guys have no necks, these guys have necks, these guys have fins, these guys have limbs, these guys have scales, these guys have donut scales. This is that same specimen that Steve found um, and it's tectonic. And so what you have is a flat-headed animal with eyes on top. Yeah, look at this. It has scales on its back. It has fins for fin webbing. But look at this. It has a neck. The head is separate from the shoulder girdle. And it got even better when we went inside these fins. What did we find? We found bones that correspond to our upper arm, forearm, and this is the important bit, even parts of the wrist, a functional wrist uh, in these creatures. Truly remarkable uh, animal. And so this brought it cast of it with me for you to look at later. This is the specimen that I showed you uh, earlier that Steve, so when Steve was looking at the fossil coming out, we saw the snout sticking out of us in the rocks. It was like this. Okay, it was really remarkable. And feel free to take a look at it after the, after the talk. So we've got many more of these things. Um, anyway, so this is the creature. Um, it's like, a, you know, so, so basically it's 375 million years ago. Here's a fish, here's an amphibian land-living animal. And like a fish, it has fins, scales, and I didn't tell you, but it's primitive jaws. Like a land-living animal or a limbed animal, it has neck, wrists, flathead, and extended ribs, which I haven't told you Anyway, so we found this creature, and now we had to name it. And so um, I was, it was my job to name the creature. So the, de the decision was uh, to try to find an Inuktitut name in the Inuktitut language that really referred to its, its provenance. Because really, we were working here at the, at the, um, at the pleasure of the local Inuit. And we wanted something to sort of reflect uh, the, the privilege that they gave us uh, to work there. So I um, contacted this committee. This is the Committee of Elders of uh, the uh, of Nunavut. 
And this is the name of that committee, which did not inspire much confidence that they would come up with a name we could pronounce. <laughs> so I was like, all right, uh, what are we going to do with this one? So, uh, so we, we worked really hard on this one. First I said, you know, I described this guy here. It's like, um, you know, we have a fossil. We have a fish we found. It's in a rock. Long pause. Fish and rocks? No, no. Fish aren't in rocks. They're in streams or, or oceans. All right. So, and so we, we had to describe a lot of sort of context that we took for granted that they didn't necessarily understand. They eventually got it completely because we sent them pictures and so forth. And the real breakthrough came when um, he said, just tell me what, where the thing lived. I said, well, it's a, it's a, it's a large uh, freshwater fish. He says, oh, you got yourself a tiktaalik. I said, why? What's, t- what's a tiktaalik? He says, it's our word for a large freshwater fish. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's like the fortune cookie. I had to go with it. So then um, uh, he actually proposed another name as well, which meant the same thing. It was a Inuktitut uh, synonym, but um, we went with Tiktaalik because it was relatively easier uh, to pronounce. But then we started to take Tiktaalik's apart. We found many of these things, at least three, but lots of other individual bones and individual bits of the anatomy of these things. So the real joy was taking them apart and seeing the individual bones and how they fit together and how they worked and so forth. And this is, these are the fin bones of Tiktaalik. Uh, there's an upper arm bone called humerus, one bone, one of the two bones here, and other bones. Remarkably, when we took it apart, we were able to look at the shoulder, the elbow, and even the wrist. That is the joint surfaces of these things, to understand how one bone moved on the next. What you're seeing here is the shoulder socket of a fish. Here's the head, the ball of the humerus of a fish. This is the elbow joint of this fish. Okay, You can see it in beautiful detail. Here's where the uh, here's the radius, and here's where the radius would fit into the humerus. You know, here's the wrist of this fish, all embedded in the webbing. And what gets better is when you compare the actual structure of these joints to the most primitive early known limbed animals, they're very, very, very similar in some ways, but they're a primitive version of that. Really, really remarkable. And so we were able to sort of do a, a very accurate reconstruction of this creature. With, you know, what you have at the end of the day is a creature with a flat head with eyes on top. He has paired nostrils. There's one there. That's not unusual for these creatures, actually, but uh, for this lineage of creature, but it's kind of nice to see. Uh, you have a, a shoulder with a head is not connected to the shoulder. I mean, you have a neck with a head is not connected to the shoulder by bone plates. You have a beautiful fin with one bone, two bones, then little bones with a shoulder, elbow, and a wrist. And when we looked at how it's put together, what you can see is it's a creature that can do a form of a push-up. It had large crests for muscles, which correspond to pectoral muscles. It had a wrist, which can extend. And so what you have is a creature that can have a, a version of a palm that can lie flush against the ground. And also had the ability of the pectoral muscles to support its body with its fins, as we're suggesting here. Remarkably also, it has these giant ribs. See, these ribs are unusual for fish, with, um, which, which overlap each other like large plates. It was truly amazing. So we did our own reconstruction. And when Tiktaalik was published, it was in the newspapers. It got quite a bit of media coverage. And after that, we started to receive uh, reconstructions that other people would do, including Miss Philbin's third grade class in, uh, in Manchester, Vermont. And they did a surprisingly great job. In fact, they were pretty careful. As their teacher was on the internet with me, you know, we were on email, uh, back and forth, going about you know, how they should do their reconstruction. Actually, this is about the right size of the biggest uh, tiktaliks we find. The smallest is this one I have uh, here. Um, the, that's one of the biggest. And so... Um, there was a really remarkable time where we were working with students and classes, both uh, in the U.S. As well as, in, as well as in Canada. But the remarkable thing about Tiktaalik is not that it just tells us about how this transition happened, that you had the origin of land-living creatures uh, in rocks of 375 million years ago, that walking began with fish that could do a form of a push-up, uh, that creatures that were specialized to live in shallows and mudflats were actually the precursors of truly land-living animals, 
But there's another more important story of Tiktaalik, and that's the conceit of your inner fish. And that is that this is telling us about the pieces of our own bodies. When I'm talking about the origin of a neck in Tiktaalik, it's the origin of our neck. I could trace it all the way back there. When I'm talking about the origin uh, of a wrist in Tiktaalik, a functional wrist, that's our wrist. When I'm talking about elongated and enlarged ribs, that corresponds to ours. So this is a piece of our own past. And there's much evidence to support this. This is not just storytelling. Layer after layer of fossil, and indeed, layer after layer of DNA evidence, which is a separate line of inquiry, uh, allows us to see to do this. Here's Tiktaalik here. Here's a fish, and we could trace upper arm bone, forearm bones, and wrists all the way uh, through to humans. Which leads to a larger story, because fossils and DNA and anatomy tell us how our bodies are built. And what we understand when we see our bodies is really we see how our, our anatomies and much of what we are as humans is accomplished and built by pieces seen in other creatures. Now, we can learn about our basic humanity by understanding fossil fish, worms, and other types of creatures because we're seeing the origin of our own basic structures and even the way those structures are built. To give you a sense, let me just close with a, a, a short series of slides. Let's talk, we're going to talk about humans. Let's start at the top. Let's start with Albert Einstein, smart guy. All right? and he's a smart guy, and he had a really important theory, E equals mc squared. Now, I'm not as smart as Einstein, but I have a theory as well. And my theory is, or an equation, my equation is Einstein equals a bizarre form of fish. And the reason why uh, I say that is because I can look at how Einstein, and all, indeed all humans, develop, and, uh, and I can look at our structures and make detailed comparisons between them. So I compare Einstein to fish. Einstein's on, on your left. And what you see, we can see this story written in our structures, but also in our development. Let's look at humans in our first few weeks after conception. In the first few weeks after conception, let's look at the head area. In the head area, you have primordial eyes developing. It's true with all fish have those too. But then you see a, see a series of small swellings here. See, they're colored in. And you see clefts between those swellings. Let's look at a shark or a fish. Same thing. The body looks a little bit different. There are different proportions and shapes and so forth. But look, you have the swellings and the clefts in between them. What happens in this area? Well, these are the famous uh, gill arches. In sharks, you can trace each of these gill arches to a portion of the jaw as well as the bones that support uh, the gills. Indeed, cells within these gill arches, some of them form muscle and bone and nerve, which actually uh, control these things. What happens to the gill arches in a human? Follow the same ones in a human, and you see parts of the jaw, you need two bones in the ear. You see portions of a little bone in the throat, another one at the base of the skull, and you see portions of our voice box. So what this is telling us is that bones I'm using to talk to you with now, and bones you're using to hear me with, correspond to the bones, the gill bones of a shark. And we see that written both in development as well as in DNA. Likewise, human arm. I already told you about this one. Human arm has one bone, two bones, a series of small little bones here, forming a functional wrist in the digits. Well, in Tiktaalik, we have the primordia of this pattern. I didn't even put it even on here. You have one bone, two bones. The wrist of Tiktaalik would sit here. There's a, let's call it a proximal carpus and a distal carpus. And there's a series of other small bones, which we didn't draw in I showed earlier, uh, which correspond to the palm bone. So we see the portions of our own, uh, of our own arms evolving in creatures like uh, Tiktaalik. Finally, and this is a very important example, and it's not frivolous, is um, if you look inside a human, what you see is, let's take a human male, shown here in, in green, are the testes. The testes sit in the scrotum. And from the scrotum goes the uh, spermatic cord, and it takes this weird loop. It goes all the way up, loops around the pelvis, and goes down to the penis. It takes a weird loop to loop. 
Sharks are a little more rational in that regard, and fish as well, because what you have is in a male shark, um, you have uh, the uh, testes sitting closer towards the chest, and then the spermatic cord ducts lead to the cloaca, which is the exit here. So they take a straight gun. They don't take the loop. What happens is, if you look at a human developing, here's a human embryo. Where do the testes begin? Just like a shark, we have a straight spermatic cord and uh, testes that develop up towards the chest. So we begin very sort of in a shared embryo condition, much like a fish. Then we acquire our mammalness as uh, development continues, as these testes descend all the way into the scrotum. So this loop-the-loop pattern is related to the origin of our mammalness, which really comes down to having a little temperature control device called a scrotum, uh, which sits on the outside of the body. And what we do is, our mammalness, we see this bizarre, circuitous root of the spermatic cord, which only makes sense when we understand our development. And our development only makes sense when we understand fish. So really what I'm saying today is that to understand ourselves, we need to understand the rest of the life on, on, on the planet. And it's a wonderful story and it's a wonderful journey because we're discovering things about this every day, whether it's fossils found in the Arctic, whether it's DNA found in every cell, in every organ of our bodies, or whether it's in the DNA of other creatures alive on the Earth today. Find out about all events taking place at the American Museum of Natural History and elsewhere in New York at our website, scienceandthecity.org.